Thank you for tuning in to Sales and Enablement, the podcast. This week, Mike Kunkel joins Crystal and Dan on the pod. Mike is the author of The Building Blocks of Sales Enablement and VP of Sales Effectiveness Services at SparkSight 2. In this episode, a few of the topics we discuss are the need to focus on outcomes that align with sales leaders' goals and what factors are crucial for helping sales teams win more deals. Sit back and enjoy this episode of The Retail. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Reynolds, co-host of Sales and Enablement Podcast, and you are tuning into episode number 35. I'm Dan Reynolds, co-host. Crystal, what the heck are you doing here? I'm the much cooler side. I am the enabler, your favorite enabler, and we have an amazing guest today. Can't contain it. He is literally a legend in the enablement space. He is the author of um, The Founding Blocks of Enablement, and I'll let him talk about that more. But I was super excited when he wanted to be on, or when I asked him, he said yes. So we have Mike Kunkel today. Mike, take it away. Hi, everybody. Hi, Dan, Crystal. Thank you for having me. It's uh, interesting that this is number 35, Dan, because I'm only 35 years old, and... uh, (laughs) And that's a lie completely. I have however, spent 35, 35 years in the sales performance improvement business. So probably, probably at least a parallel there. And uh, as far as legends, Crystal, I think I'm a legend in my own mind. Hey, you're a legend in mind too. <laughs> We've all got a lot in common. We're all 35 years old and legends in our own minds. Incredible. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Oh, this is great. This is so great, Mike. I think one of the most intriguing things I think about you is your experience, right, in this space. And I think, oh, man, what he has probably seen just. And I think a lot of enablers who have that experience, 10 plus years experience, can see just the evolution of of how enablement has come to be. But fast forward to today. And one thing I wanted to ask you, because I know a lot of new enablers are starting new job roles and they're coming in to this new company and just any ambitious person is like, how can I, how can I, uh, you know, get the right or earn the right to do bigger and better projects that I know are effective, but you may not have stakeholder buy-in. Um, it's just, you've got to earn that. So one one thing I wanted to pick your brain about is how do you get some of those sort of quick hit results that that give you that right to do the bigger things? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's going to sound odd probably coming from me, Crystal, because you mentioned the building blocks of sales enablement. It's probably one of the most comprehensive frameworks, right? There's a dozen blocks in the center and there's systems thinking and communication and sits on top of a block called sales support systems. And when you look at it, a lot of people swallow hard and say, wow, that is like a lot of stuff. It'd be like eating an elephant. And all of that is true. But when you're starting in a new role, you don't eat the whole elephant in one bite. And if you want to earn the right to do bigger things and to get that coveted seat at the table, you need to figure out what really matters most right now 
to that senior sales or revenue leader that you're supporting. And it really just comes down to outcomes. And I'll give you an example of, I started at a company at a time when there was some research published by CSO Insights that had these two interesting diametrically opposed pieces of research. One was that 67% of senior sales leaders that year said that their top objective was to Im increase the number of new logos or new accounts in the coming year. 65% of those same leaders said that their team was not well poised to do that. Now, if you were working for a senior sales leader and you knew that their primary goal, number one for next year, was to improve new logos, bring in more new accounts. Not that account management's not important, not that growing the customer base or customer success not important, but their single biggest goal, more new accounts. Now, are you going to, at that point, start focusing on all 12 of the blocks and the systems thinking and trying to put all this stuff in place? Or are you going to figure out how you can help that sales force win more deals, put yep. more new logos in the pipeline and navigate those more effectively? Now, there's still a ton of stuff that needs to be done to make that happen. Now you're talking about, do you have great buyer acumen? Are you focused on the right ICPs? Do you know the problems that they're happening so you can do problem statements and outcome statements and tell them what solutions might get them there and then ask if they want to explore more? Once you get them in the pipeline, if there are multiple buyer personas, are you navigating that process and satisfying the buying process exit criteria for each one of those buyers? Are you doing some sort of qualification methodology to make sure that you have a prayer winning these deals? Are you navigating the buyer landscape and figuring out who views you in what ways and who you need to influence differently? Ton of stuff that needs, still needs to happen. It's not like it's easy, but if you figure out the primary objectives for your sales leader, and then start to do the work that will help your sales force accomplish that, you can pick up some pretty good quick wins. Now, to do that, you need top-down support. Guess what? If you're focusing on the things that are going to move the needle on the metrics that matter most to that senior sales leader, do you think they're going to support that? 100%. Do you think they're going to get their frontline sales managers engaged to support that? And so... If you're helping them move the needle on the metrics that matter most to them and achieve the outcomes that they want, you automatically are starting to build collaborative support from the people who drive the change in the sales force. And that's your frontline sales managers supported top down by your senior sales leader. You do that, you can go pick up some quick wins. Now, it might not be, we need to win more new logos. It might be, we know that right now, we have a ton of unmined opportunities in our account base. How are we going to better unearth those opportunities and grow the account base? It could be that sales velocity has been trending down and we need to reverse that. And so you can look at the elements of velocity and figure out which one is the biggest lever to do that. Whatever it might be, if you focus on those outcomes and the things necessary to drive them, you'll have some quick wins, you'll earn credibility, You'll build a relationship with the people that matter who are driving change, and you'll earn a seat at the table 
it have the ability to do some of the other things that you know you want to do because you've diagnosed and now you're going to prescribe. That's how I think you can really get some quick wins. That's awesome. Awesome. Dan, you look like you were going to say something. Yeah. Uh, it sounds a lot like discovery in an early phase of a, of an opportunity, Mike. You're my new friend, Dan. I call it a, I call it a situation assessment. I teach it to enablers. I teach it to sellers. It's just a consulting model. What is your current state? What's your desired future state? And I use a framework called CoinOp. What are the challenges or the opportunities that a company is facing today? What are the impacts of those, of either not resolving the challenge or not capitalizing on the opportunity? You jump over the end for a minute and go to the desired future state. What are the outcomes that matter most? What are the priority of those outcomes? That tells you if you do a needs analysis, what's the gap between the two and what do they need to go from point A to point B? Then you can do an impact analysis and say, okay, here are the impacts of sitting still. Here are the outcomes we're going to get over here if we do this stuff. Here's what it's going to cost to get there. Here's the gain we're going to get. Now we have ROI in a business case. You do that as a seller. You do that as an enabler. It's the same thing and it works. So you're spot on, man. It is a just, it's a consulting form of discovery that works. Yep. Great. Not rocket science, right? This is not rocket science. Yeah. So, you Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Thanks, Crystal. <laughs> One of the things that we always face in the sales opportunity is, are we speaking to the right person? Do we, and, and do we need to speak to multiple people? Of course we do. So I'm going to put my, my, my feet in the shoes of a new enabler. Uh, who is the first person I should speak with? And I know it'll be different at, at, at every org, but what, who are the second and third people that I should be speaking with and how high should I go on the power ladder? So I do think it's contextual, right? But I don't think I've started a new gig without at least trying to get to the highest level that I possibly could with the support of the person I've reported to, usually the senior sales leader, right? So if the senior sales leader doesn't want me trying to talk to the president or the CEO or someone else, I might try to navigate that over time and do some nurturing and influence that. But I would like to at least get there. And I'd like to have a, at least a basic conversation about what matters to them, where the company's going, strategic plan, that sort of thing. Obviously, whoever I report to, you know, it's weird. I still see enablers reporting to folks outside of sales, but whoever you report to, and if you don't report to sales, to the senior most sales leader, then I want to talk to the level down from that. And again, in some organizations, that's a VP or director level. In some, it just goes right to the frontline sales manager. Depends on the size of the organization, so contextual. But then I want to start to think about who I'm going to invite into the charter party, as I call it. Who are the cross-functional collaborators that are going to be involved in defining sales organization, or sorry, defining sales enablement in this organization? And is there a sales ops or rev ops group 
Is there a marketing operations and marketing and content marketing? Who are all the various players that have a stake in seeing the Salesforce produce and obviously helping customers succeed? Because ultimately, that's the goal. And I'll quote Zig Ziglar from 40 years ago, you get what you want in life by helping enough others get what they want. So if we are customer and buyer centric and support them, then it's really about supporting the people who are supporting the customers. I think the guy who first said that was Jan Carlson when he was turning around SAS Airlines. He said, if you're not serving the customer, serve someone who is, right? And our job <laughs> enablers, right? You know, our job as enablers is serving those who are serving the customer and helping them do that as effectively as possible. So I think anyone in that universe, and it's going to vary by organization, right? But if you get those stakeholders involved and then you start the charter party, right? Building your, what would John Cotter call it in his change management work? The guiding coalition, he calls it, right? We generally call it the charter Right? But the, all those stakeholders who you're going to have to work with, who's going to be doing what? Who owns what? Who supports what? How are we going to report it to each other? How are we going to measure success? That can get really tricky in some organizations, but you've got to figure it out. And so I think I'm, my, my goal, Dan, is to really figure out who all of those stakeholders are and have a conversation very early and quickly with them. And then decide who I'm going to be pulling together to be part of the, the charter group. That's great. That's great. And by the way, I know we're speaking about new enablers, but I, I, again, to draw a parallel with an op, a sales opportunity, if you're not sure, you know, where the deal is going and it feels a little shaky and you haven't, you planned everything, but maybe you've lost track of it and things aren't as clear, maybe it's time to do this exercise. If you're not, if you're, if you've already been there for a while, but maybe you're, you don't have all the answers uh, uh, as you should have after you first started and asked the questions. Yeah, that's really important. Dan. And I think it's, I call a webinar that I do how to start or evolve your sales enablement practice to deliver results. Sometimes you're inside already and you haven't really been able to deliver what you would have hoped. You need to step back and reassess, right? You should do that annually anyway, maybe even more frequently, right? If you're doing sort of the plan, execute, measure, evaluate, adjust model, right? Where you're constantly trying to figure out what's working, what do I need to change? You should be doing that anyway. But I think that's it's absolutely critical. Sometimes you have to step back and say, how am I going to evolve this now to the next level? And if you haven't done the charter, if you haven't done the situation assessment, current state, future state, coin op, right? you need to do that. If you're not using force field analysis as a tool, it's, it could be really helpful because once you figure out this coin op and where, you, where your sales leader wants to take things, if you're using the building blocks of sales enablement or whatever framework you are using, you should do a gap analysis of that framework to figure out what of this framework supports where the sales leader wants to go? Where are the dot connections? What are the levers that I can push and pull on to move the sales organization to where the sales leaders want to go? And then, then you know what initiatives are going to be priority to help get there. Then you can do a force field analysis. 
right? This is an old thing from Kurt Lewin in the 1940s, but it's brilliant. What are the forces that are pushing me forward? He called them driving forces to move from point A to point B. What is the either the missing information or the restraining forces that are holding me back? And that creates a force field, right? And so once you identify the driving and restraining forces, then you can ask yourself two questions. What do I need to reduce or eliminate on the restraining forces? What do I need to add or strengthen on the driving forces? And that actually helps you take your situation, whatever it may be, and turn it into an actionable plan, right? Because now you're going to get this information that you don't have. You're going to do something to reduce or eliminate these restraining forces. And those are actions you take. Then you then what do you what am I going to do to do this? And it might be the things in the building blocks or the framework you use. Right? It might even be something else. But now you can turn that into an actionable plan. So I teach and use force field analysis all the time. It's a really sharp tool. And I use it to really create a sales enablement plan that will tie back to my framework, that will tie back to CoinOp and what really matters to the sales leader. And that's how you draw the line to the work you're doing that will produce an outcome that matters. Yeah. Mike, I'm so familiar with your stuff. Definitely read your book and I listened to quite a few podcasts and interviews that you've done and familiar with the CoinOp um, you know, that, that was actually, when I first heard that term by you, it was, I think it was like one of your first interviews with Felix. So it was a while ago, it was a while ago, but you were talking about buyer enablement. And, um, I, I really listened to that entire, that entire interview. And it was just, it was fantastic. Everything just made so, it made so much sense. And I love that you are able to obviously talk about the strategic piece of enablement, but you also break it down to very, you had just like actionable, actionable things that an enabler can do. Like what we had just talked about, those, those quick hits. I think a big topic, and I see this all of the time on from everyone on LinkedIn and the people that I talk to as well. Now, I will say, I, I guess I hear it from the same people, <laughs> and I don't think it's just broad across enablement, but how to measure and evaluate to prove enablement's value. That is always a topic, but I don't ever hear just a wide variety of enablers. I, it's usually a group who are constantly beating the drum on, hey, you got to do this. You got to do this. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. So tell me from your perspective, and I'm sure you've done this many times over, but how do you measure and evaluate to prove enablement's value? Yeah, so some of it actually comes out of some of the training evaluation models. Don Kirkpatrick published a model in the 70s that still being used a lot today. What is the reaction to the training? What learning occurred? Um, what behavior changed because of it? What results did that deliver? And then a guy named Jack Phillips and his wife, Patty Phillips, came along 
in the ROI Institute. They added the fifth level of ROI. Yacht Fitz Ends has done human capital improvement measurement for years. There's a ton of stuff out there, Crystal. And what this is one of the things that I've been trying to get across to enablers for years is it's, it's like that old quote by, I don't know, it was Galileo maybe, if I've seen further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. There's an entire body of work out there for performance improvement that many enablers tend to ignore. Organization development, organization behavior, organizational improvement, Six Sigma, Lean Sigma, business process management, change management, TQM, all of these things were designed over years, right, in different factions about how do I improve the performance in an organization and how do I measure that? And if we could just tap more into that, right, we would be doing better as enablers. Now, to try to get a little bit more specific, we'll go back to my example about, okay, my sales leader this year wants to improve new levels. What does that look like? First, it's probably going to be the effort that we're putting out to approach new customers. How are we going about the t d defining the ICP? And do we have a body of leads that we believe these are the customers we want to bring in? How are we organizing those territories and account bases in a way that makes sense to optimize the approach? What is the approach that we're taking? And then what does that execution look like? What's the go-to-market against that in terms of how marketing is doing it, where we're picking up in terms of sales? How are we measuring the success we're having toward that? And then looking at velocity, looking at new account growth, acquisition. Okay? And you can start to measure leading and lagging indicators all across that. Now, you could go crazy probably with the leading indicators, but you need to get some in there, right? And I'm always a fan of try to measure as much as humanly possible. And then when you step back and look at it, a month later, two months later, three months later, you can start to see what really matters. And then maybe you can pare down. And I would look at the number of leads coming in. I might look at the conversion ratios across the, the process and start to look for where problems are occurring and breakdowns happen. Now, I would look at how much is coming out the other end of the funnel and in what volume and in what profitability. And then I would start to measure the things that I'm doing month by month against how am I improving those things or not. And so I do a lot of trend line analysis. Now, I worked a project back in 2003 that in 18 months delivered $398 million in accretive revenue. And that was what the CEO and the CFO attributed to the work that we had done. But to get to that point, we had to figure out who were the other people who were trying to improve performance? Marketing was going like crazy. The comp team was trying to drive incentive and get people to do different things through the comp program. We were doing campaigns, right? And so the pricing team and marketing was involved. And so we got these people together as our own little measurement group. And once a month, we would meet this team with the CFO and the CEO. And we would report on the activity that each of us had done that month. We would look at the trend line analysis. And if we trended out where the trend line would have gone without us doing anything, and we looked at the difference between that and what happened, 
we could start to see that we were making a difference. And then it was a matter of arm wrestling to determine who gets attributed that increase. Right. <laughs> and it is, and you know what? All tr- I, this is what I used to joke about on webinars. I would say all training evaluation is a lie. What you need to do is get together with the people and agree on which lies you're going to believe. <laughs> right? And you have to figure out in the beginning to avoid some of that arm wrestling, how are you going to do attribution when attribution is almost impossible? And so if we were doing, you know, we had a month where the training that we were doing was pretty much the same, but marketing ran a special campaign. If we saw a lift above the trend line that was more than we expected, that all got attributed to marketing and the work they'd done that month that was above and beyond what we already were trending and doing. And we just assigned things and we all knew that we were, we really, it really wasn't a hundred percent true or accurate, but it was the best that we were going to get. And we were getting the people together that mattered. And we were having the CFO and the CEO agree on it, sign off on it or push back month by month. So at the end of the year, when we reported this phenomenal lift, the CFO couldn't say, that's a load of crap. Let me see your analysis. They had been involved with the analysis month by month. That's great. And that's, that's the smartest way to do it. Now, is that hard work? It sure is. I can it, imagine. Oh, there's a joke out there that, you know, that any heavy ROI analysis reduces the ROI by about 20%. Because <laughs> of the time in and in the work that goes. So you don't honestly need to do that all the time, but you've got to get people together and agree on how you're going to measure before you start, or you will later be getting beat up about, no, you're really trying to puff up these results. So if you do that and you get people to agree on the measurement plan later on, when you report it, you're either all be cheering, you're all be saying, okay, what do we need to do differently? because it's not producing the results we want. And everybody fears that, but I've got to tell you, I've never had an executive team disrespect the fact that I've come and said, here's where we are. Here's what I thought was going to happen. We have fallen short. Here's what I think it is, but we're still exploring it. And we're going to do this change to see if it gets a better lift. I've never once had an executive say, you're fired. You're out of here, man. You don't know what you're doing. They admired the fact that we were doing the analysis, figuring out that it didn't work, and then making changes to figure out how we could make it work. Mm-hmm. Exactly disrespect that in my experience. I love that you did in the analysis, that trend analysis, where you did almost like temp checks with stakeholders so they could see the process. They mm-hmm. could see whether it was getting attributed to marketing or to enablement, but what you're keeping them in the loop, because I think that's a big mistake. And I know that I've made that mistake in the, in, in the past is by not keeping everyone in the loop and whether it's meeting weekly or biweekly, whatever it is, or whether it's an, an email, I, whatever you do, but keeping them involved and letting them know the progress and where, where that line is. And exactly like what you said, Mike, just at the very end about this, the fell short. Here's why we think it fell short, but here's what we're going to do moving forward. 
And here's why I think this is going to work. I think just keeping stakeholders in the loop with information like that is you're right. I think any executive would definitely appreciate that instead of there's like a two month window of not seeing anything. So then it's like finally at the end of the two months, it's it was eh, wasn't fantastic. And it's now I got to go back to the drawing table. And in their mind, they're like, oh, great. Another two months. I don't know what's going on. So I, I really love that and appreciate that. And I think a lot of enablers can should do something like that. And I don't think it's happening nearly enough, that very open communication. You know, transparency has a magic to it. I worked back in the early 2000s for a startup software firm in all places in Ohio, right? Not, <laughs> not, not, not out in the Bay or anything. We had this, uh, we finally hired a, as they joke, a gray-haired CEO who came in from a real company right, to this little software company brought in by the venture capitalists that were supporting us. And he had a, he had a really interesting approach toward things. There was a lot of turmoil on the executive team as we were trying to grow and scale and figure things out. And he said, look, I want you to, I want you to take this role. I'm going to call it VP of strategic implementation. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to get this damn executive team aligned. I want you to figure out who's not aligned and get people in a room talking. And I, I said, okay. And I hated him for that for about six months because <laughs> it was probably one of the toughest things I ever did. But I would go in someone's office and have a conversation and I'd get them to tell me about Bill down the hall who was really screwing things up. And I'd go talk to Bill who would tell me about Sally down the hall who I just came from who was really screwing things up. And then I'd get the two of them in a room. And one of the things that we did eventually is what we created a completely transparent project team outcome dashboard that everybody had access to in the company, including the CEO, this new CEO and the president founder. And when that went full transparency, you could see who was throwing banana peels in front of things or who wasn't delivering <laughs> on outcomes. I call it banana peel syndrome. I love it. <laughs> you get a meeting together with people and they do a false consensus or Abilene paradox. They nod their head like this in the meeting, but after the meeting, then they're having the meeting after the meeting and, <laughs> and they're, they're talking about all that person. And then they throw banana peels in front of progress because they think it should be going a different way. It completely wiped that out. People were like, oh, damn. All right. And all of a sudden they had to band together and figure it out because they were exposed and it changed the culture in about three months or so. And in six months, we had achieved everything that we had set out to achieve. And I got to go do a fun job, right? But it was a phenomenal experience. And I appreciate that he put me into that pressure cooker for a while because I took so much away from that. And it taught me how to get alignment over time in the power of transparent porting which actually is Baldridge, I think, or maybe the TQM guy. If he just openly published results, people will almost self-track and try to do better. Yeah. And it's amazing how transparency fosters that. That's pretty awesome. I love that. 
definitely love the banana peels. I got a little glimpse, a, a little vision in my head about Mario Kart and throwing banana peels out the side of the <laughs> that that's too full, Mike. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um it it's there's so many nuggets here that hopefully people are, are jotting down, similar to when I heard that first interview that you had with Felix, just jotting down all of this cool stuff. Now, I'm in it. Dan, did you have any more questions about this? Because I want to ask Mike something like totally unrelated to enablement. But if you have anything else now. No, I want to get, I want to hear what question you got now. It's totally unrelated to enablement. It's not crazy. This is just you, Mike. I've obviously seen Frank. I love Frank. I follow Frank on LinkedIn. But, and I know you have your Instagram page too. Um, I'm just curious about you as Mike, right? Tell us what your favorite movie is, Mike, ever. Wow. Shawshank Redemption, probably. Ah. Andy Duchesne. Yeah, that's right. Andy, yeah. Andy Duchesne, the roof scene. Man, there's so many... There's so many good messages and nuggets in that. Yeah, probably that. Awesome. Who's, awesome. who's Frank? Who's Frank? Oh, Frank, Frank, is, Frank, Frank is my dachshund. The dog. Did do, we, do, the dog? do we need to see I Frank? Mean, yeah, I saw the Frank. dog, but, maybe, but Crystal, maybe Who's there's ready? people that don't know the dog. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Oh, there's Frank. There's Frank. <laughs> He has his own LinkedIn page and I follow it. So. Frank, the enablement dachshund. Adorable. That's awesome, Mike. You know, what's really funny about Shawshank, just a quick tidbit. So Morgan Freeman's character, Red, in the book, Red was actually this red-haired Irish guy. And, uh, you know, Stephen King wrote. And so when they were when they were writing out the the screenplay and and then they wanted they casted Morgan Freeman and Stephen King got really upset about that. He was like, wait, like he does not fit red. Like red is Irish. Red has red hair. He's got freckles. And they decided to stick with Morgan Freeman and they overrode Stephen King. And obviously it was I personally think it was such a huge Morgan Freeman was amazing in that, right? But there is a part in the movie where Morgan Freeman does has a line in there where Andy Dufresne asks him, why do they call you red? And he's, can't you see my red hair? And it's, but it's like a little kind of nod to that, if you will. But yeah, just a little tidbit about Shawshank. I love that movie. (laughs) I don't, I don't know what it is about Stephen King movies, right? But if you get out of the horror genre with him, he's got Shawshank. He had The Green Mile, which I absolutely love. Stand By Me, right, which was a coming-of-age flick. Hearts in Atlantis, another another really touching movie. I I turned out to be a huge Stephen King non-horror fan. I know. It's the non-horror stuff, right, that... that De- definitely gets me the green mile amazing he did there was actually a show also that gosh wh- why can't i rock it was rock 
some I can't remember, but there was a, it was a Netflix. It was on Netflix for a little while, and they haven't done a season two, but it was outstanding. But anyhow, so I can't believe our small I can't believe our small talk is about movies now, like NFL training camps are are in full swing, or the no, not the training camp, but uh, the pre camps. Are you a football fan, Mike? I I I am. Right. Every year around the Super Bowl, I usually have to ask somebody who's in it. <laughs> so you were the right move. Talk about movies, Crystal. Good move. <laughs> movies were good. Yeah. I who who doesn't love movies and music and I always I always just love asking different enablers questions like that because it helps me to fill in some of the gaps. Movies, music artists, things like that. But but anyhow, Dan. If you don't have anything else, let's let Mike have the rest of his day back. Jeez. Yeah, no, that was amazing. Mike, thank you very much for your time. It's awesome for you to share some of your day with us. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. It was fun for me. I have been a fan of Crystals for a while, and now I'm a fan of your podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. You bet. Have a great one, guys. Thank you.